0: Proverbs 3, 27. Withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. Say not unto thy neighbor, Go and come again, and tomorrow I will give, when thou hast it by thee. Devise not evil against thy neighbor, seeing he dwelleth securely by thee. Strive not with a man without cause, if he have done thee no harm. Envy thou not the oppressor, and choose none of his ways; for the furword is abomination to the Lord, but his secret is with the righteous. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesseth the habitation of the just. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. You may be seated. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. That verse in Psalm 119, verse 21. The last few times that I preached here, the focus was on Psalm 119. You might remember that... Uh, I spoke on verses 1 and 2 a number of weeks ago, and then a few weeks later uh, on the subject of affliction and being afflicted, as a number of verses in Psalm 119 speak of. Today, we hope to continue delving into this, into the truth and the beauty of this magnificent psalm, this nice long psalm, Psalm 119. And as I looked at Psalm 119, I noticed that there were six verses that mention a certain type of people, or a certain group of persons, mentioned and, and, and describe a certain group of people. And the verse I just read, Psalm 119, verse 21, is the first of those six. So I'm hoping that you are, have your Bibles open to Psalm 119 and maybe you're even looking at verse 21 and are trying to ascertain what I would be thinking of there in verse 21. There's a two word phrase that is given in verse 21 and in five other verses in Psalm 119 and it appears quite a number of times in the Bible Especially in the wisdom literature of Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and so on. You know that David, King David, was probably the author, probably the writer of Psalm 119. And he had quite a lot of experience with this type of person. Throughout his life, from the time that he was young. Until the time he was very old, um, quite a number of experiences, different people. And sadly, some of those, uh, too many of those were from his own family. Um, I'm thinking of people like Eliab, and Goliath, and Saul, and Doeg, and Nabal, and Absalom, and Shimei, and Ahithophel, and Adonijah, and that's just a, probably an incomplete list of people uh, that are the kind of people that Psalm 119 speaks about in these six verses. So we'd like to look at the other five verses it, that mention this group. And, and interestingly, those five verses also give characteristics of this group of people, what makes them what they are. And so we'd like to look at them in turn. And the very first one would be in Psalm 119, verse 122, and we'll get there in just a few minutes here, I think. As we look at these five, my intent is to discover whether or where or when I'm a member of that group. And I will give you a hint that as long as you're human, as long as I am, you and I will need to wrestle against joining that group. by the grace of God through Jesus Christ and through the aid of his Holy Spirit, you and I can safely be delivered from membership in that group or any kindredship in that group. So this is just another opportunity to examine myself and for you to examine yourself. And if you're thinking about that, this sounds a little bit like the devotional this morning, that Joseph so did so well in Psalm 32, well, yeah, another opportunity to to examine myself before God himself to see where I am, what direction I'm heading, and in what group I really belong in. I think of the verse in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, remember that verse where God says, examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves, Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate. And so the title that I've chosen, not flowery at all, here it is. The title, The Proud, according to Psalm 119. The Proud. We will see that that two-word phrase six times, verse 21, and five more times. The Proud, according to Psalm 119. And as I thought of that and that phrase, then I thought of another phrase that a certain division of our armed forces sometimes uses, Um, a certain branch of the military has a slogan. It goes something like this, Uh, might be familiar to, to you, the few, the proud, the marines. And I think I understand that the gist of that slogan is to conjure an image of ability and and strength and pride in their work. We understand, don't we? The Bible, though, gives no room for pride. Always in scripture, the proud, that group, the proud, is looked down on, um, spoken against in Psalm 119 and uniformly throughout. So, let's look at, yes, going now to verse 122 in Psalm 119, which reads, think of David as he wrote this. Be shorty for thy servant for good, let not the proud oppress me. What is it that the proud folks do? Well, a characteristic of the proud is that they oppress others. It's so clear there in in verse 122. They oppress others. What does oppress mean? um, One definition is to press upon, be crushed. And we see that in the root word, don't we? What is oppress? to oppress is to press, as to be crushed. It carries the point of, uh, of deception and violence, oppressing others. David says, God says, that the proud oppress others. Um, it's a vivid word picture, I think, of pressing down on somebody or something until he comes apart, he becomes crushed. I just think of... Yeast. Um, some stores have bricks of yeast, you know. Um, one pound bricks and they're hard. At Kaufman's we're selling a lot more yeast than usual these days. But they if one presses hard enough on that brick of yeast, that hard brick, all of a sudden, I think it just gives way. becomes crushed. That's what The proud do to other people. And I think this is especially a poignant example as we think of what's happening, what happened with a man named George Floyd uh, just in the last week and what's happening in Minneapolis these days. That's what's happening. That's what happened to him. That's what's happening some more. Oppression. Proud, the proud oppress Others. It's a picture of. Active ill will. Moving on to verse 85. And let's just notice what. The proud. Are described as doing. In verse 85. The proud have digged pits for me. Which are not after thy law. The proud. They dig pits. And you might know that that used to be a common way of catching wild animals. Capturing wild animals so that you could kill them and eat them. Um, Apparently, that was done in old, in Israel long ago. And when we consult the encyclopedia, we learn that other people did that in times past, especially in Scandinavia. They would often be able to capture reindeer and wolves and that kind of thing by digging a pit. Selecting a a likely spot where wildlife would have been known to frequent and pass through. So you would dig a pit. They would dig a pit big enough and deep enough and steep enough so that no animal, after he falls through, would be able to get back out. The proud do those kind of things. They dig pits. And then you, of course, when you're thinking of wildlife, you would need to cover it with a weak cover of some kind, Uh, put your sticks and leaves and camouflage it, and then step back and see if you could capture what you were looking for. The proud, when they do that, they have such intense dislike for other people that they'll go out of their way to dig a pit. Takes a long time. A lot of effort. A lot of sweat and toil. But the proud are willing to do that to see their enemy fall and be captured and to be under the control of the proud. Active, active ill will. A picture of proud people. Going to verse 78. So the proud are the kind of people that oppress others. They press until they, are, until they crush those that they have a vendetta against. They also dig pits. Uh, verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed for they dealt perversely with me without a cause. But I will meditate in thy precepts. Another mark of the proud is that they deal with in a perverted way, that they dealt perversely with me. They deal in a perverted way. And what does perverted mean? It carries the idea of to be bent. To be bent. To make crooked, to falsify, to pervert or subvert. So we're talking about perverted and that, well an arrow is made to be straight. An arrow is only good if it's straight. An arrow was, the mission of an arrow can only be accomplished if it's straight. But the proud are the kind of people that will make the arrow crooked so that no good thing can come from that arrow. We understand that picture, don't we? Crooked. And also, there's that root word vert. Perverted. They deal perverted, in a perverted manner. The, the root word vert, and you might know, you English scholars or students that vert means to, to do what? To turn. To vert means to turn. We use that root word a lot of times when we talk about inverting or diverting or converting Vert means to turn. The proud, according to verse 78, deal in a perverted way. They turn aside the goodness of others because they are proud. And then moving right on to verse 69... The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. The proud have forged a lie. The proud have forged a lie. And to forge means to smear or plaster over. You get Again, you, we understand the picture, don't we? That when, we, when the proud forge a lie against other people, It's as if they're smearing the truth so that nobody can see the truth about this person, but they can see the lie instead. The smear is the lie. The proud have forged a lie to smear, to plaster over, so that the truth can't be seen, but only the falsehood is visible and clear and can be seen. We use our... That term is used a lot in the political world. Where um, a political figure is known to smear his opponent. Same kind of, same type of picture there. Psalm 119 verse 51. The proud have had me greatly in derision. Yet have I not declined from thy law. What is it that the proud people do? Well, they oppress others. They're they're great at digging pits. They deal in a perverted wrong way. And they will be, they forge lies. They smear over the truth. And according to verse 51, they also have others greatly in derision. They are great at deriding others. And to deride someone simply means to scorn, to mock, or to scoff. Sounds like gossipers, busybodies, those kind of things. To scorn, to deride. And does the word scorn and scorners, does that remind you of the book of Proverbs? Where the scorner is in view various times. That, that would be an interesting activity for you. Perhaps to look up the scorner and see what all that says in the book of Proverbs about the scorner. The scorner is one who derides. He mocks, he scoffs others. Tim Keller says that there's especially two characteristics of the scorner. Two characteristics. Uh, one of them can be seen in Proverbs 13, 1, and I'm just going to turn to that real quickly and read that. A wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. The one characteristic of the scorner is that he is always right. Tim Keller says, the scorner is always right. You don't hear the scorner say, and you certainly don't hear the scorner say and mean it that, well, I could be wrong, but or I've been wrong. Maybe I'm on the wrong track here, those kind of things. Neither will the scorner say very often at all that, I'd be interested in what you think on this. Uh, Could we discuss this? And the scorner is not that kind of person. He's always right. He is deaf. (laughs) Proverbs 13, 1 says that a wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not. Uh, scorners are deaf to the rebuke, to instruction, to wisdom, uh, to others in general. They can't hear at all. And why can't they hear? Why are they so deaf? Because their perspective is... Their thoughts on a certain subject or any subject is that they are, their perspective is the correct one, is the right one. The scorner. The scorner is always right in his own mind and has no use for the wisdom or the care of others. What is the opposite of a scorner? I would just submit that the opposite of a scorner is a disciple. Disciple. A disciple is one who learns from, other, from another, from others. Uh, one of the synonyms for a disciple is a learner. I would say that the opposite of a scorner is a disciple who is glad and happy to learn. He realizes that he still has a lot to learn. He realizes that he doesn't have everything just right. He realizes that he's been wrong. He'll be wrong some more. A disciple. A learner. Well, the second characteristic of the scorner follows c- kind of right along. Uh, Proverbs 9, 7, and 8. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Rebuke not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. So, the second Characteristic of the scorner is that he is disrebe- disrespectful of others' viewpoints, of others' thoughts. Typically, for uh, a scorner, just under the surface, there's an attitude, there's uh, lurking a certain level of contempt and disdain for others. And Mr. Keller goes on to say, and I quote here, according to Proverbs, these two characteristics do not stem from a lack of intelligence. Proverbs speaks of the simple or the gullible person, those who lack sense because of their lazy thoughtlessness. But scoffers are not intellectually lazy. Indeed, they are often sharp-witted and may have seduced, may have been seduced into this mode by their very mental acuity. Their condition is not due to their mental capacity, but to their mental attitude, especially their attitude toward themselves and therefore toward God. And did you notice in that quote that he talks about the simple person as well as the scorner? The book of Proverbs talks about both of those, The simple one and the scorner. And that also could be an interesting study for you sometime, to think about the scorner, to think about the simple, and why the Bible calls them these different names. How are they different? How are they similar? The simple people and the scorners. Which is better, do you think, being a scorner? Which is a better condition to be in? Being a scorner or being a simple one? Well, the Bible gives us a couple hints. I was surprised at this in my study. Um, If you would turn to Psalm, no, Proverbs 119. hmm, Proverbs, oh, I think I'll get there yet. Proverbs 19.25. And you will see when you get there that it mentions both of these types. Now, much better than to be a simple one or a scorner would be to be a wise person, to be a godly person, to be a just person, to be a Christian. But let's see here. Proverbs 19:25, just the first part. Smite a scorner, and the simple will beware. Which would you rather be? a scorner or a simple Proverbs 21:11 When the scorner is punished the simple is made wise Which would you rather be I th- the Bible is pretty clear to me that a simple person can be on his way to becoming wise to becoming godly and just pretty hard for a scorner to be heading that direction. So, did you notice that in these five verses and the five characteristics of, this, of the proud that I talked about the deriding one, the scorner longer than anyone else, longer than any of the other four. Why do you think that is? Well, one major reason is because I think, I could be wrong, I think that that is the deriding part is where we here are most tempted in. Did you think about when we talked about the oppression, oppressing, crushing, you know, Pressing until you're crushed. And when we talked about digging pits, that we don't do those kind of things. We don't even very often aren't that tremendously tempted, am I right, with uh, dealing perversely and forging lies and those kind of things. But it seems to me that the deriding part is where we might struggle more than the others. Have you heard, uh, do you know about Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow? Um, The Bonnie and Clyde story. Back in the 1930s, there was, Bonnie and Clyde met. And were instantly attracted to each other. And he, at that point, was a small town criminal. And they started hanging out together and more. And he soon became a bigger town criminal. And she joined in Bonnie and Clyde. And soon they were robbing st- small stores and uh, gas stations and banks throughout the Midwest. In various states, they, they stayed on the move and were, became quite notorious. And people knew about them. And in the course of their activity, they st- were killing people. Uh, I think that maybe they killed a number of policemen and, and civilians. Until finally about four years later, she was 23 and he was 25. When they were uh, law enforcement officials ambushed them on a lonely road and shot them. That's the short story of Bonnie and Clyde. So, why do I talk about Bonnie and Clyde here today? Well, a couple points. Just a couple. Number one is that sin sucks one in. History is littered with examples like that. How that sin starts little, but it soon gets bigger. And again, I'm sounding a little bit like Joseph in the devotional this morning, aren't I? Sin sucks one in. It starts small, and soon it has you in its grip, and it's terribly hard to get out. As time went on, uh, they they just became more brazen. Sin, Sin sucks one in. And so I submit that when one becomes part of the proud group by, and there's lots of other characteristics of prideful people, But we're here in Psalm 119. When when I become a part of the proud. Because I am so good at deriding and belittling other people. There's a good chance that I will progress. That I will regress to bigger and more sins. I could soon get into dealing perversely and forging lies. And soon I'll be digging pits and oppressing others. The full gauntlet of sin. Just to say that deriding, being part of the proud group, being part of the proud by something simple and not very sinful like deriding will surely lead to bigger sins and more sins. Sin sucks you in. It starts small and soon it has you in its grip. Another thing that we should just mention about Bonnie and Clyde is that he said that the reason that he's doing all this is because earlier in his life as a teenager or maybe maybe around 20, he had been in jail a couple times and was badly treated there. Both by other prisoners and I think by the prison officials and it made him bitter and one of his family members said that after he got out of jail he was just a different person. He was worse. And the reason that they were doing all this robbing and needing to kill people if people got into their way is because he wanted to make enough so that he could get back at the Texas um, corrections system. So, he was onto that victim mentality trip where it's not my fault, I... It's your fault. Sounds like a scorner, doesn't it? A classic example of a scorner. Clyde Barrow was not a victim of his own circumstances. No, he wasn't. Because he, as well as you, and as well as I, are accountable for ourselves. And if we find ourselves in the proud group today, We need to realize clearly. And I would just say it, try to say it as clearly as I can. It's be, we're there because of ourselves and our sin and not because of anybody else, no matter how terribly other people have treated us. Well, something else about Bonnie and Clyde. So, one point that I'm trying to make is that sin will suck you in. Another one is that a victim mentality is no excuse because we're personally responsible before God. A third thing that I'd just like to say is that they knew, this couple did, we know that they knew by things they said and some things that she wrote that were found that they realized that they're going to come to a violent and miserable end. They knew they couldn't get away from the law forevermore. They knew that eventually they're going to pay for this. But that didn't drive them to any kind of repentance or surrender, surrender to the law enforcement or repentance toward God. But they got in so deep that they thought that there's no hope for them. The only thing they can do is keep going and hope for the best and hope that that day of reckoning won't be quite right away. So, there is hope for the sinner. There is hope for the scorner, There is hope for the proud, the people in the proud group. There's uh, always the possibility and the truth of repentance, of turning completely around and going away from sin and heading for God and for Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has made that for you and for me uh, we are never beyond, uh, we we'll never get to hopelessness, which is where they really were, because they wouldn't turn. They wouldn't repent. But they could have, and so can I, and so can you. Like John Lap Lapp, has, we've heard him say that, haven't we? There's always a right way to go from here. I noticed in the book of Nehemiah how that Nehemiah's enemies did these kind of things. The Sanballats, Tobias, and the Geshams, they, mem- they were a part of the proud. They were, obviously, you can look at that sometime. They were part of the proud. And they began with deriding. Just look at chapter, the end of chapter 2. They derided and scoffed and scorned. After a while... That kind of response progressed to lying about Nehemiah. And then a little later on, they were doing active things against him. That progression, that digression. Which, all of that brings me back to the Proverbs 3, where Nate read, and I chose that portion especially because of verse 34 Proverbs 3:34 where the bible says surely he we know that's god right surely he scorneth the scorners but he giveth grace unto the lowly and that thought we could talk about how god uh, gives a dose of divine retribution to the scorners, God scorneth the scorners. But let's just talk about how that, that verse is picked up and quoted twice in the New Testament. It's in James 4, 6, and again in 1 Peter 5, 5. And there it's rendered just a little differently, of course, but you know the phrase. God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. James says that, and Peter says that. I think that's significant. Um, The James that wrote the book of James, if I have my James straight, is the same James that uh, was in view in our Sunday school lesson today, who Gave the concluding address at the Jerusalem conference. And it was so well thought out that the people just agreed with that. After there had been much debating. You know all of that because of Sunday school the last couple of weeks. And you might also know. You may have discussed in your lesson. In your class. How that James from what we know was a very austere and conservative fellow. Godly, but conservative and would have tended to always be on the Judaizers' side earlier. But as at this conference, as the leaders debated and discussed about this burning question that would really have a great impact on which way the church goes, it was big peanuts. And during the course of that, we think... James changed his mind through what was being said, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he was humble enough to get up and say, I changed my mind. I was wrong. This is the right way. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. I will always be grateful that James was willing to do something like that. Now, Peter, he wrote that too. God, giveth, um, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Peter wrote that. Was he a humble kind of person um, in his earlier days? See, do, do you remember how that on the night of Jesus' trial and crucifixion and death the night before, Peter said, oh, if everybody else leaves... And deserts you. You don't have to worry about me. I'm with you the whole way. Does that sound familiar? Um, Does that seem like he was maybe one of the proud? Years later he said. God resisteth the proud. But giveth grace unto the humble. God resisteth the proud. But giveth grace unto the humble. In James and in First Peter. Um, what is the context there? Was that being said to non-Christians or to Christians? It looks to me, as I scan the context in James, like it's really being spoken of to non-Christians. And if that is your case today, and you're sitting here or hearing this, and you have never accepted the Lord as your Savior, you must know that you really are have been too proud to accept God's grace and forgiveness, that you really are a member of the proud. And you also will know that you really don't want to be that because there's nothing good that can happen to the proud now or ever. And so, trying to be just as clear as I can, if that's you today, humble yourselves and get that grace that God gives. James, I think, gives that verse in the context of the non-Christian. If you look at 1 Peter, it's pretty clear. It's very, very clear that the context is that he's speaking to Christians. In fact, the context is, it's, um, it's in the context of church leaders. Very clearly, James, uh, Peter, is, the Holy Spirit is telling church leaders and all of us, it, it makes that real clear, all of you that church leaders, Christians of any type can be a member of the proud. Don't know, can't reconcile all of that or anything, but yes we can. And God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So, just because I'm a Christian doesn't say that I don't struggle with pride. But again, God's grace is there. If Thank God for salvation through Christ Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of learning and becoming a disciple of his and following Christ. Away from the proud and to Jesus. And wouldn't that be a wonderful slogan for us here? Remember the few, the proud, the marines. Wouldn't it be? Much, wouldn't a good slogan um, as we close here to be the many? the humble, the disciples. Will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give grace to the humble. And I pray, Lord, that all of our hearts, that my heart and all of us here could be humble before you and listening to what words that you're speaking to us and where you have words of rebuke or where other people have words of rebuke and instruction and wisdom, I pray that we wouldn't be one bit scornful of that, but that we, we would be true disciples of yours, followers and learners of you on our way to heaven. Thank you for the hope of heaven through Christ Jesus and his shed blood. We are so grateful for that today because the best that we can do, the very best that we could be, would be to be part of the proud group. But we thank you that through him, through Christ Jesus, we can be washed from our sins, washed in the blood, and on our way to heaven. Even so come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.